0: Open your Bibles to the Gospel Mark right now, Gospel Mark chapter 6, as soon as you guys open that, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read a little passage, and then uh, we're going to get to work. Um, it's a story that probably most of you guys are familiar with, it's the story of Jesus walking on water, and uh, it's definitely more than just simply a nice little Sunday school story about Jesus visiting his little buddies with smiles on their faces out in the middle of a lake on their raft, it's more to it than just that. So open up your Bibles, I'm going to pray, then we'll get to work. Jesus, we ask for your help this morning, and even before we begin to read your word, God, we ask that you would just prepare our hearts, help us to hear, to have eyes to see, to have ears to understand. God, we just commit this time in your hands. We pray for your work to take place in our hearts. We want to be changed. We want to be transformed, and we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Mark chapter 6, we're going to pick it up uh, verse 30, and uh, sorry, verse... Uh, Forty-five down to the end of the chapter it says this. Immediately he and his disciples got into a boat to go to the other side to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd and after he had taken up leave of them, he went up to a mountain to pray. And when evening had come, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw them that they were making headway painfully, and the wind was against them. And it was about the fourth watch of the night. And he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw it and they were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and he said, "Take heart, it's I. Do not be afraid." And he got into a boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And When they got crossed over, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and they moored to the shore. And when they had gotten out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region. They began to bring their sick on their beds, wherever they had heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and they implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him, they were made well. What we've been taking looking look at basically in short throughout the Gospel of Mark is this real big picture is that we've got to make sure that we get the picture of Jesus correct, We realize that as we've been studying this, that there's a temptation by each one of us to fabricate or to make or manufacture our own Jesus. Typically what we do is we we start out with the biblical Jesus, and then we begin the editing process. Meaning what we do is based upon the various specific types of lifestyles that we have or ideas that we adopt or viewpoints in which we come from, we begin the editing process. So for example... People that might have a particular propensity towards sin, and they don't want to recognize sin as sin. They want to try to make excuses for it or justify it. Their viewpoint of Jesus, or they typically adopt an idea of Jesus as being extremely loving, extremely tolerant, and as one who just is really quick to overlook some person's um, indiscretions or improprieties or sinfulness. And other people, say for example, typically like take take uh, religious type people that tend to focus oftentimes upon the holiness of Jesus, that he's a holy God. He does not have any tolerance whatsoever towards sin. And so depending upon the different types of viewpoints that you come from in this world, the various types of things that you want to hold on to, we can fabricate and make our own Jesus. We call that kind of an editing type form of Jesus. And the problem with that is this, is an edited Jesus is a lesser than Jesus than the one that's revealed. That less than Jesus that's revealed that you made cannot save you he cannot help you. He can't change you. He can't affect you. He can't do anything to help you because he's a less than revelation than who he actually is as he's revealed. And so really what we need to do is we need to understand when we read the Bible, we need to take Jesus for who he is regardless of how difficult it might be to somehow mesh certain concepts of him together It's our job, if Jesus really is who he claims he is and who Mark tells us who he is, it's our job really not to be doing most of the talking anyhow, right? It's our job to do most of the listening. Let him do most of the talking. He's God. He speaks. He has a mouth. He reveals. It's our job to do most of the listening. And so what we really want to do is we want to make certain that our revelation of Jesus is is correct, that's clear, because at the end of the day, what God really desires for us is for us to be set free. For God, God desires for us to be liberated from our sin, from our sinful ideas that take God and bring him into a box and take God and edit him and make him a little bit more palatable for us so that we would be willing to accept him. Really what we want to do is we want to make certain that if those are the propensities that we have or the way in which we've been living, what we need to do is we need to repent from those things and turn from those things because those things will actually contribute to your destruction and not to your freedom. So what I want to do right now is we're going to begin to take a look at this story. And what we see here in in the story of Jesus is that Mark has been regularly painting for us this picture that Jesus is a king. From the very beginning of the entire book, he starts out by saying, "This is this is uh, this is Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's the King. He's the Christ." That idea of Jesus being the Christ is synonymous with basically saying he's the King. He's in the lineage of David. He's like David. He's King. He's anointed. Um, He has some particular power or vocation that God has appointed for him. And as Mark continues to tell the story, he continues to add detail upon detail as to who this king is and what this king's real ultimate job is. That the king comes, this king, as in most kings, when they come, they come and they oftentimes will spill blood. And that was a typical history of all kings. Anytime a king came into a town, someone's blood's going to be spilled, right? Right? especially if you are part of the opposition. So anytime a king came into town, you had every reason to be frightened, especially if you were an opponent to that king. Kings come into town, whether it be Caesar, whether it be Nebuchadnezzar, whether it be Pharaoh, uh, any king in ancient history, when they came into town, you had reason to be fearful because blood's going to be spilled. This king, Mark, ultimately is going to tell us he comes... Just like he came 2,000 years ago today, as we recognize kind of um, good, uh, you know, Palm Sunday, where Jesus comes into town. But this King comes into town not to slay his enemies, but to be slain for his enemies. Not to bring affliction upon those who are his foes, but to take affliction for his foes, for his foes, from his foes. It's an amazing reversal. This king is a radically different king than any other king that's ever gone before. And that's the picture and the portrayal that Mark wants us to understand. So he's a different king. And so what we're going to learn about this king today is that this king is always motivated by love. We see this, I think, most explicitly in the story. Because here we see, it's one of the reasons why I read these two stories together. In some ways, they seem very different, but in some ways, I think they interconnect. I mean, on the one hand, Jesus is up all night with his disciples. He sees them struggling in the storm. Jesus walks out in the water with them, gets in a boat. Kind of a very similar echo of the story that we just seen a couple weeks ago, when his disciples are like, we're going to die. And Jesus is like, you're not going to die. And he calms the storm, right? Speaks to a hurricane, and the hurricane ceases. Very similar, kind of an echo of that. And so Jesus is up all night, he's dealing with his disciples, tells us that these guys, his own team, his own teammates, They have hardened hearts, you know, dealing with a bunch of knuckleheads that are just constantly dropping the ball, constantly second-guessing who he is. This is Jesus' team. He's tired. He's fatigued. He's no doubt hungry. He gets off of the ship, comes to land, and what does he do? He's surrounded by a mob who's like, Jesus, can you heal me? What does Jesus do? He's not like, no, it doesn't fit into my schedule. I have an appointment with a bed right? It's nothing like that. He's just like, all right, get all your friends, tell your family members, I'm going to be cruising around. Anybody that wants me can have a piece of me. So he spends the next hours, several hours, healing everybody that touches the hem of his garment. It's absolutely amazing. So what we see that Mark, I think, wants us to understand that he is absolutely motivated by love and compassion and kindness. That means that everything Jesus does is done out of an act of love. So what we're going to see here in the story are are two things. So basically a two-point message, two things I just want you to see. Don't get your hopes up yet on being too short because you're like, oh, two. That's one less than normal. And, uh, yeah, don't be too anxious. All right. Um, The first thing that we'll take a look at is really in verses 45 through 52, which is the story when Jesus walks on water. And really what we see is that his love leads his disciples into the storm. His love actually leads them into the storm. I'll kind of break that down for you in a second. And secondly, we're going to see that his love led them into this world of human need, which I just mentioned. Jesus comes in this world of human need, radical needs. People are sick. They're dying. They're demon-possessed. They are, are full of oppression, various forms of oppression. And Jesus leads his disciples into this and basically says, we're not going to turn them down. We're going to serve them. We're not going to fight to keep ourselves together. We're going to give ourselves away. It's like all motivated by love. And I think that's what Mark wants us to see. So the first thing we'll take a look at is that Jesus leads his disciples into the storm. And the first thing I want you to notice, there's two things I want you to notice about why I think Jesus leads his disciples in the storm. Or what happens when Jesus led his disciples in the storm. And consequently what happens when we as disciples, if you are his disciple, you get led into a storm. Because really at the end of the day, all of us, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian here you will be led into storms, all right? There will be things, elements that will happen in life where you will be taken off guard and things will not go the way that you planned, things will not happen the way that you anticipated or expected, and you will find really what is the core of your life, what are the ultimate value system that you hold on to, whether you are a Christian or not. But Jesus, in this case, we're actually told very clearly by design leads his disciples into a storm. So take a look at this. The first thing that we'll notice is that storms, really they confront our view of ultimate reality. And I'll explain that in a second here. These storms are going to confront our view of ultimate reality. So first of all, I want you to just notice a couple things real quickly here in, out of the story. Um, just kind of a few bullet points. Verse 45, we're told that Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go to the other side. So Jesus knows all things. He knows that a storm's about to happen. What does he tell his disciples to do? Guys, don't go on to the There's a bad, nasty storm happening tonight. You avoid the lake, all right, get away from the lake. Nasty things are going to happen at night. He's like, nope, hop on a boat, bye-bye, I'm going to go pray. All right, so Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. So Jesus is actually leading his disciples into the storm. Um, the thing, second thing we're told is that the boat was on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So I, I just, I find this kind of interesting. Like if you were in a helicopter, looking at this whole kind of perspective. There you would see in the middle of this lake, uh, the disciples freaking out, rowing against the wind, and there's Jesus like up on a mountaintop praying, seeking God, calm, at rest. Maybe looks down and sees his disciples freaking out. But that's, that's what's happening here. That's kind of the perspective of this. Um, the third thing is we see that he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. So Jesus sees all of this. What's he doing? He just keeps praying until the right time. Then he goes out in the boat. Walks on the water, goes to them, and deals with them. But the first thing that we notice is that the storms oftentimes, in this particular case, it really helps people to identify and understand and confronts us with our view of ultimate reality. Here's what I mean by this. Is that for thousands of years, millennia, people have been asking this big question, what am I here for? Um, what's the purpose of existence? Um, what's the ontological reason For me being alive like why am I here what's purpose for this life and these questions have been pondered for literally thousands of years by minds far greater than than our own and oftentimes answers are few and far between and what happens especially in the culture in which we live in today the answer that comes back to us from the philosophies of our day is that the reason why we're alive is chance that's the best that we can come up with. Just chance. You're here because of an accident. Things just happened over millions of, billions of years that certain things have happened together, certain chemicals came together, and certain components and certain compounds formed, and amino acids formed, kind of the basic building blocks of nature. And all of a sudden, over another million of years, somehow things have sort of formed together, and we have life and know life as we know it, and th- we're here basically by way of an accident. There really is, to speak of purpose, has to speak of a purposeful reason for it, but because the typical modern-day philosophy has this idea that there is no purpose for it, what it really amounts to is this, that we are just alone on some lake rowing our boat into a storm for no reason. There's no reason for it. That leads to total despair. Because the philosophers of a day basically would say something like this, that if, if, if in reality we are a mistake, if in reality things are just happenstance or chance, then the, the real purpose in life, in your life, is going to come from what you do. You're the one that gives yourself purpose. How you handle circumstances will determine whether or not you live a meaningful, or purposeful existence. And, and I don't know about you, but if you kind of draw that to its furthest extent, it will lead, that religious belief, and believe me, it is a religious belief, it's a humanism, humanistic belief, will lead to one or two areas. One, You'll be full of despair. Because you will look at life and think, I can't make much of myself. I can't even graduate from college. I can't even get the job that I really want. I can't even find the spouse that I really want. And you'll live in despair. Because you will never be able to get on top of it. You will always have just not enough to make yourself advanced. You will always be just a step behind. You will always feel full of despair. Or, let's just say hypothetically, you have lots of money, all right, I think the big $640, 000, $640 million jackpot was just won yesterday, right, by three people. So three people are ridiculously rich right now, all right? It's crazy. 200 some odd million dollars people are going to get. Their lives will be changed. So they might be people and all these, it's kind of funny because all these, you know, came from these, like, these little podunk towns no one's ever even heard of. I think one of them was called like, I don't know. Red Bull or something, or I don't know. Some town you've never even heard of, right? And, and the reality is, is that these people, now they have all the means that they can imagine to make something of their life, to give their life some semblance of order or purpose. Okay, so now you have all the money in the world. Now you have all the means in the world to do something with your life. What type of person do you become now? I, I, I see typically the extremes are either full of despair or you become an arrogant, egotistical tyrant because you have all the means. Both of those. Logical conclusions oftentimes are just self-destructive. Both of them. And so the reality is that we look at life and we think, no, life has to have some sort of meaning. Life has to have some sort of purpose. That we are not just simply content to just simply expect that things are meaningfulness, there, there is no meaning, uh, meaningful purpose in life, or that we, life is just not valuable, that quite to the contrary, that we look at life and think, no, there has to be some semblance of purpose. It's one of the reasons, like, uh, I've been telling you guys, that there's, a, there's a couple, a uh, family in our church, and they actually went to the first service outside now. Um, their daughter was in a, in a very severe accident several months ago. And no one said after she got through this accident, like, you know what? Don't worry about it. Don't try. Just pull the plug. It's purposefulness. It must have been she just was designed to die. Nobody is okay with that. I've known people, friends of mine, that have had parents die. And no one ever comforts them by just saying, whatever, circle of life, it's all good. There's something about death that's very unnatural that we don't like it. We resist it. We are not okay with death. We are not okay with disease that leads to death. There's something about it that just... Every bone in our body resents it. And the only reason is has to be. We weren't made for death. We weren't made for disease. We weren't made for brokenness. But something horribly wrong has happened in this world that has brought about these things. But what I think the story that storms teach us is that when we enter into these storms, we realize that life is not meaningful that life is not meaningless, that life is not without value, that God has a purpose, God has an intention for it. And what I think Mark wants us to understand is that Jesus enters into this storm and that if we see Jesus in the storm, then it helps us to begin to understand how life has value. Jesus himself enters into the storm. And I think this story is an echo of a storm that's to come, that Jesus will make his way into the center of. But first of all, we begin to realize that oftentimes when we find ourselves exposed or brought into these particular types of storms, they really do challenge our view of ultimate reality because when it's in the storms, we begin to kind of ask those questions, what am I here for? What's life all about? So are good questions to ask. The second thing that I want you to notice is that storms expose our need for reordering our fears and our loyalties. And here's what I mean. Take a look at verse uh, 52. It just basically goes something like this. I'll read it to you. Um, he points out, make sure I have it here. He says, for they did not understand about the loaves, and he uh, says, for their hearts were hardened. And So what we see here in this story is that here these guys are on the sea, on the open sea. They've been working all night against these very strong winds and they're not making it to the destination they were hoping to go to another town but they weren't going to that town because the winds were against them and so they're working really hard striving really hard but they're not going the direction that they expected and then somewhere in the middle of the night they see what looks to be or appears to be some sort of a phantom or a ghost or a demon or some sort of spirit being they're not entirely sure what it is and we're told that they became very fearful and all of a sudden jesus shouts to them and basically what he says to them is he says um don't be afraid it's i and all scholars, uh, all commentators would point out that the particular Greek that Jesus uses here actually echoes back to uh, what God spoke to Moses, like at the burning bush or at other times of difficulties, when Moses came down, God would speak and say, it is I. I am that I am. Jesus is basically saying the same thing. So in the middle of the storm, Jesus uses or borrows a phrase from the Torah to cause their minds to realize that this is not a phantom. This is not a ghost. This is something far greater than something beyond. This is this Jesus is somebody more powerful, more potent than we've ever even dared to even understand or recognize, that there's something unique about this Jesus. And really, what he's trying to say is that you need to see me. You need to see me in the middle of the storm. But here's what happens the storm reveals their fears. They're afraid of the spirit, they're afraid of a demon, they're afraid of the storm. Their hearts are immediately overcome and overtaken by the circumstance, and we're actually told this little clue that Mark gives us, the reason why they were full of fear is because they had not yet fully comprehended or understood the the miracle around the loaves. In other words, they were still trying to figure Jesus out. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're still trying to figure Jesus out. In reality, I think a lot of ways, all of us are still trying to understand who Jesus is. But at the end of the day, what revelation we've been given about Jesus should captivate our heart to the point where we trust Jesus for who he is. But here's what happens. Storms have a way of really causing to rise to the surface what our ultimate fears are. Fears and love actually go hand in hand. Here's what I mean. The reason why we oftentimes find ourselves overtaken, overcome by anxieties, is because we have a love of something And there's that love, that thing that we love is threatened in some point. Now think about this. Anxieties oftentimes arise because we have love, an extreme love for something, and the threat rises that we're about to lose it. Storms cause us to realize that we may be losing something. We may be losing our life. We may be losing the life of a loved one. We may be losing the life of some sort of crutch or something that we've been holding on to. And once we are threatened by the reality of losing that particular thing, we become full of anxiety, full of fears. But here's the point. What Jesus basically does, and what he's already done throughout the Gospel of Mark, is he wants to reorder their fears. The issue is not just don't be afraid, although Jesus does say don't be afraid, but in reality, what what he's really trying to emphasize, make sure that your fears are reordered. Reordered, reorganized around me. That's really what he's saying that you're afraid of all of the wrong things but you're not respectfully fearful of me you haven't yet known me you haven't yet seen me jesus would say elsewhere don't fear what man can do fear god who has the capacity who has the ability to both destroy soul and body in hell's fires it's this idea that really we need to make certain that our fears are rightly organized and rightly ordered. That the number one problem oftentimes in most of our lives at any given moment is that we have disorder, disorderly fears. We're afraid of the wrong thing. I was talking to someone the other day. I'll give you an example of how this works out. This gal is com- just completely uh, controlled by these certain fears. And they're crushing her, literally destroying her. And I, just in the conversation, I was like, look... The, at the end of the day, this is not an issue if you don't have faith. You have faith. The problem is, is you have faith in the wrong things. You have very strong faith, very strong faith. The problem is you have very strong faith in a lie. You're believing the wrong thing. You have great confidence, great faith, but your great faith and confidence is in a lie. And every time you bend your knee to that lie, it becomes a, a master over you. It controls you. It governs you. And it's destroying you. I'll give you an example of this. It kind of works out in other forms. Say, for example, somebody that's very concerned about their appearance. They want to make sure that their appearance is always legit, they're always looking good, they're always in a particular weight frame, because at the end of the day, what they're very concerned about, they're concerned about the approval of other people. might be a girl who's very concerned about the approval of a man, and so therefore she feels that if she's not physically fit, if she's not you know, under some weight, if she doesn't look beautiful, then she will not be affirmed, and she will not love, be loved. So what happens is she has a fear of losing affirmation from another person. So therefore, she bends down in terms of, by way of worship, to this lie, and yet now she's bound. She's not free. She's not free to go to a buffet and eat a nice big buffet line of food. Jesus made food so that we can enjoy it. It's really good. Food is very good. In fact, heaven's full of you know, celebration and food and good wine. That's how Jesus designed it. But the reality is, is that when we bend our knees to a particular master that is actually destructive, it begins to destroy us. We disintegrate. We fear the wrong things. And we're bound. We're crushed. It may be fear of losing power. I know guys that are pastors. Pastors that view their church as a platform for power. And anybody threatens them or questions their leadership or questions or threatens their content or questions or threatens who they are or what they say or how they do it, they freak out and they move into posturing mode to somehow bring judgment upon the person that's inquiring them. Why? Because at the end of the day, they're desperately afraid of losing power and it brings anxiety in their heart. But the most free people are those that see Jesus and have the right fear and awe and respect of Jesus. This is what was going on with the disciples. The disciples were desperately afraid. We're not told exactly what they were afraid of, afraid of a ghost, afraid of drowning, but they weren't afraid of Jesus in a proper way. And so what Jesus does oftentimes through these storms is he reorders our fears. Maybe for some of you, that's what you're going through in your life right now, and if this is true, if this is one of the reasons why Jesus allows certain forms of difficulty and hardship and storms in our lives, then really, it is the most loving thing of God to send us into storms. Wouldn't you agree? If he, de- if he truly loves us, and he truly recognizes that storms have this way of causing us to realize at the end of the day, we are not the ones in control, We are not the masters of our fate the way that we think we are. That that is nothing more than a a delusion and an allusion. It's not true. And being in the middle of the storm reminds us of that over and over again. We are not in control as we assume we are. That really, at the end of the day, that thought that comes into our minds that permeates us is that really what happens is that it's not ignorance that causes us to believe that we're in control. It's a hardened heart. we refuse to take God at his word. We refuse to believe what he's revealed of himself and let that change us. Let that affect us. Because if we did, then that very simple instruction would help us to see that maybe the storms that we're going through in this life today, challenges that we face, things that we are confronted by, are actually ways to reorder, reorganize fears rightly. You, as a human being, are only as strong as the thing that you put your ultimate trust and confidence in. Let me give you an example of this. If you're somebody that looks at life and you're like, you know what? I just hope one of these days to get married. Marriage is like the ultimate. If I can just get married, then everything will be great. Some of you might be like, if I can just be in a relationship, it'll be great. Some of you be like, if I can just get a vocation, get a job, get that job, a job, whatever it is, I will be fine. And you put your whole confidence in that. That becomes something that you... Put your weight upon. Maybe you have a gift. You're a musician. Maybe you're an artist, and you're like, if I can just get that job, get that gig, get that album out, get that whatever, and you put your confidence in that, and you put your hope upon that, but what happens if that thing doesn't materialize? What happens if that marriage doesn't succeed? What happens if that relationship breaks? You and your heart are only as strong as the thing that you put, place your ultimate confidence in, and you are as fragile. Let me turn that around. You are as fragile as that thing that you trust, Do you understand that? So if you have trust, ultimate confidence in a relationship, and if that thing is fragile and breaks, your heart breaks. If that job is that thing that's like, I can just ultimately put my faith and confidence, now I got the job. What happens if you lose that job? You have no guarantees. What happens if it's lost? You are as fragile as that thing that you put your confidence in. Storms have a way of reorienting us. Storms have a way of grounding us, revealing to us those things that we fear that we shouldn't fear, and trust that which we really should trust. Because oftentimes when we go through storms, here's what we say. We say things like this. I'm in a storm, trial, difficulty, hardship, loss, setback, yada, yada, yada. God's not present. God's not here God doesn't love me. God's powerless to save me. God's powerless to help me. I don't think He's here. But what you're going to see in the story is what you need to see today is that Jesus does come in the storm. And the final thing that I want to finish with is this. I'm dumb is that we see that his love ultimately leads him into this world of human need and suffering. In verses 53 to 56, again, I already kind of mentioned it earlier. He comes out, he helps all these people, serves them, cares for them, loves them, pours his life out for them. It's absolutely amazing. Because to be honest with you, um, sometimes loving people, especially those that are very high maintenance and have a lot of expectations, is actually more difficult than going through, say, a sickness or an illness. It is. Because people are expecting something from you that you just don't have the ability to give. And here's the disciples. They're watching Jesus. They're tired. They're fatigued. They're hungry. They got off of the boat, and they spend the next several hours helping hundreds of people that have great needs. How? Mark wants us to ask that question. How is it? How can Jesus get off of a ship and spend the next several hours helping a bunch of people that have extreme expectations and have extreme needs. How does he do this? And I think the answer that Mark wants us to come away with in terms of perspective of this whole book is that the reason why Jesus is able to heal these people and to pour his life into them is ultimately because of great expense to Jesus. Jesus took upon himself these needs and these hurts of all these people at great expense to himself. And what I think Mark wants us to understand is if we step back even from this book even further, get to the end of the book itself, we begin to see that as this storyline continues to progress, the trajectory is ultimately going to a cross. If I can put it this way, what's happening right now is a perfect collaboration of storms merging together over the life, over the ministry, over the person of Jesus Christ. And what's going to ultimately happen is that Jesus is headed toward not just a storm, not just, you know, a bummer day, not just like, oh, I had a rough day because, you know, someone, you know, put a crown of thorns in my head. But Jesus is ultimately headed to the ultimate storm, the ultimate storm that all of us have contributed to. So the Bible tells us. That it's our sins that have brought judgment upon ourselves. And yet what Jesus does, that Mark's going to tell us, that this king doesn't come to afflict his enemies. He comes to be afflicted for his enemies, by his enemies. That the perfect storm, not just of the best that mankind will do for Jesus, i.e. torture and death, but even greater than that, for the first time in all of Jesus' life, He will cry out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in Jesus' entire life, there was silence. No voice. No response. No word of comfort. No word of hope. Silence. Hell. Jesus... Took the perfect storm, the ultimate storm, so that we who are in these little storms in our life could realize that even though we may feel like God is absent from us, He's not absent from you. So that we might feel like God is distant from us, He doesn't care about us. He really, truly does care for you. He really, truly does love you. He really, truly is near you. But perhaps what's happening is God is designing. By way of his own power and love. To do something in your life. Do something through your life. By way of a storm. That's all designed, all motivated by his loving hand. To help pry your fingers. Off of those little things that you've fabricated and fashioned. To help sculpt, reshape the way that you see God. I'm convinced that the number one problem that we oftentimes have is just like the disciples. Where it says that they were of hardened heart. Meaning they didn't see Jesus. They weren't willing to see Jesus for how he revealed himself. That's our problem. So at the end of the day, it's not ignorance that we need to get over. It's hardness of heart. And the only way that we get past hardness of heart is repentance. We have to repent and confess that maybe what we've been doing our whole Christian walk, or what we call our Christian walk, is we've taken an edited version of Jesus, and we've made him our God. And I'm trying to tell you, an edited version of Jesus will not help you cannot heal you, will not save you, will not rescue you, because he is a God that you created. When Mark says, no, what we need to do is we need to step back and we need to see what God has done ultimately through the storm, the ultimate storm, that none of us, if we trust in Jesus, will ever go through. The reason why we will never go through that ultimate storm of God's wrath and God's judgment is because Jesus Caught it, took it, captured it, absorbed it for you and I. And to the degree that you recognize that, to the degree that you know that, and you realize that, and you embrace that, all the other subsequent storms that you go through in this life, that you're tempted to believe, God's not with me, God doesn't love me, God doesn't care about me, you now can identify that as a lie. It's not true. It's not fact. We know that. Because Jesus endured the ultimate storm. You're going through a storm. It's not an ultimate storm. The storm you're going through will not ultimately crush and destroy you. It may crush and destroy your gods. It may crush and destroy those things that you have wrongly feared, that Jesus lovingly wants to reorder, reorganize those fears in your life. But what God did on the cross was he designed the way so he can crush sin without destroying the sinner so that we can be saved. And in the end, that we now as redeemed people, saved, washed, can actually go out into a world where there's a lot of hurting people. And rather than become myopic, rather than being people that just turn into ourselves, rather than people that run away from the hurting, the marginalized, the poor, the suffering, the struggling, we now, like Jesus, can help them. Speak to them, love them, shine on them. That's what Jesus wants to do. Aren't those the people that you love most? Aren't they? I mean, look at your life. Who are the people that were pillars in your life? Mom, dads, grandpas, youth pastors, people that you maybe can think of in your life that you're like, ah, oh, they were so awesome. Don't you want to be like them? Like, think about it. Some of those people, when you peel back the layers, what made them who they were? I think what you might oftentimes find is there are people that trust in Jesus, They trust in the God who has greater power than the storm's. And that's who they have their hope in. That's why they're able to be this constant fountain of life for you when you're suffering and struggling. But that's what God wants to make you into for other people that are suffering and struggling. We live in a world full of it. This world needs help. This world needs hope. And the way that God has chosen to do this is by allowing us to see the king who rides over the storms. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna sing. We're gonna respond. I'm gonna have the guys coming up and lead. What I'm gonna do right now you're here this morning, and you personally are going through some storm, some issue, something that God is challenging you, challenging your fears right now in your heart, and he's saying, I want to pry your fingers off of these things. I want to set you free. It might be a storm in which it might actually have to do with sickness. You may be sick. We believe God wants to heal the sick. We believe that. We pray for people that are sick. Maybe it might be a marriage that's fractured or broken Breaking or a relationship that 's gone south or relationship with a you know a child or a parent or some sort of family member that God wants to heal and God wants to bring about restoration or reconciliation, whatever the storm is, we really just want to pray for you right now so any of you at all right now that feel yourself in the middle of this storm and you 're tempted to disbelieve God in it or you find that God is challenging your fears right now what you wrongly fear in order to make sure that you fear the right things in the right proportion if that's you whoever you are you might be a Christian dealing with this you might be a non-Christian and you want to trust Jesus whoever you are I just want you to stand up right where you're at and I just want to pray for you that's all I want to do I just want to pray for you whoever you are wherever you are some of the reasons why we turn up the lights because it's not about you I know sometimes this can be kind of weird because people think they're going to look at me this is not about you this is about you trusting Jesus who wants to help you, who wants to rescue you. We just want to pray for you. We're just a family. That's all we are. We're just a church family. We're not perfect. All of us go through those moments where we struggle, where we have fears. I have the same thing. I go through those struggles myself. We're all on that same level. None of us is better than, greater than somebody else. We're here because we really truly believe that God has great power to do mighty things. Cool. anybody else just stand up right where we're at we just want to pray for you anybody else just find yourself in a storm and you just feel God pulling in your heart maybe some of you just you hear the message and it was good and you liked it and, it was, and that was it and you don't feel it, so overwhelmed. we don't want to manipulate urge anybody you know, but we want to give an opportunity because some of you might be like this is me I'm, this is me this is my life you read a page of my life this is it if that's you I want you to stand because I just want to pray for you anybody else give me another second some of you are kind of maybe challenged. I don't want to stand up, man. And I just just encourage you. Don't don't let fear hold you down. Don't, don't let fear bind you, man. Jesus actually wants to set you free from fear. Okay, what I want to do right now is, is we, we just have too many people proportionately to our, our leaders to be able to pray for you. So what I want to do is I just want, if you're standing around, sitting around somebody that's standing, could, could you just go find these people and lay hands on them right now? If you're a leader here involved in a community group or leadership in any way servanthood with regard to children's ministry or something like that can you just go lay hands on someone and pray for them just pray out loud right now for them i believe that god will give you words to speak over them words to pray for them just pray out loud over them right now so they can hear you don't be afraid to touch them they need touch jesus touched people we want to touch people not in a weird way but in a way that says we are with you we love you your family you may not know their name just pray for them right now give you a second, and I'm going to pray over you, and we're going to sing. We're going to worship by singing. We're going to worship by partaking of communion, by remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. The rest of you guys can just meditate. Think about Jesus. Maybe confess sin. Maybe pray for the people that are around you. Maybe ask God to help you. Maybe pray for someone that you want to invite to Easter service this Sunday. I don't know. Just pray. Pray for your family. Jesus right now I just pray I want to pray over all those that are already currently praying God just that you would answer those prayers that they're being prayed for right now God for people that may need to be healed we ask you Jesus would you heal them supernaturally heal them touch their body whatever that infirmity is God just bring healing to them if it's an emotional issue or a fear or something that is just their life is being destroyed and crushed Jesus set them free help them to see the power of Jesus and what he accomplished for them on the cross God, I pray that you would help all of us to identify areas of hardness of heart, to confess that before you. We pray for softness of heart. We pray for softened hearts. We pray for hearts that are moldable and pliable like clay in the hand of a potter. God, that you be the potter over us, shape us, mold us. God, to be who and what you desire for us to be, image bearers of God, filled with joy, being able to be a blessing to the world around us. We want to sing to you now, God. We want to worship you.